This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the book of Esther, and today we begin chapter 3. The story of Esther is short and simple, but it drives home the same message. God is in control, even if we can't see him in action. We've already watched God behind the scenes in human conduct and human culture. Today, we'll see God behind the scenes in human corruption. At every step, the Bible uses irony to emphasize that people's small view of history is no match for God's view from the eternal present. God is not the author of evil, but he will not let evil thwart his will. In fact, he uses it to demonstrate his sovereignty. Let's listen to the first part of today's message from Pastor Pierre. Now, in the early days of the monarchy in Israel, King Saul received orders from the Lord to carry out divine judgment and annihilate the Amalekites, old enemies of God's people. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. The king led this military campaign, but in disobedience to his marching orders, captured the leader of the Amalekites, a guy by the name of Agag. He kept them alive and took spoils of war, which was not what God demanded for him to do. Now, Saul's defiance really had consequences for future generations. The Lord removed him from the throne and pronounced this sentence, famous now through Samuel the prophet. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 through 23. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Ouch. This information here explains the events surrounding the next scene in the book of Esther which introduces really the major drama of the story. Um, A descendant of Agag arises or rises to power and demands from people what God has clearly forbidden. So if the first chapter of the book of Esther featured the arrogance of Ahasuerus, the second featured the enthronement of Esther, the third one now features the hatred of Haman, the name of the antagonist or the villain here. But mastering the art of effective, non-redundant, non-pedantic repetition, because God is never into redundancy unnecessarily, the author now presents another conspiracy, another genealogical record, another royal edict, and another drinking binge. Thus, he sets the stage to show us that God never abandoned his people even when we experience severe antagonism. Do we all know that? So keep that in mind. That's the theme of uh, what we're going to talk about today. God never abandons his people, even when we experience antagonism. Let's just recap a few things here in the book of Esther. God is never mentioned by name, although his hand is all over the place. 
There's a reason for that. He doesn't need to be mentioned. He doesn't need to be in front stage here. We know God acts behind the scenes in human history. We have evidence in several other parts of Scripture and personal experience. God providentially uh, arranges events in our lives so that He will be honored and glorified and we will grow and mature and get closer to Him. That is His perfect plan for our lives. Even if we don't understand details of that plan, we don't need to know them. We just need to trust that God knows what He's doing and who are we to question His plans. Everything He does is good by nature, is just, is benevolent and gracious and merciful because these are attributes of God. Of God, We are not in a position to question uh, although we have permission from him to not like sometimes what happens in our lives and ask God to equip us to go through whatever it is we're going through. We just read, Pastor Johnson just read a portion of the book of Job here for us, a man who understood that very well. But God never abandons his people, even when we experience antagonism. So we're going to elaborate on that theme this morning. We're going to divide the next scene in the book of Esther here in four acts. The first act of this scene I'm going to call the irony, verses 1 through 2. Listen to those verses. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. So there's an irony here in the introductory scene here we're calling the first act here. The author repeats, first of all, the technique with which he introduced the previous chapter. You will remember in chapter 2, verse 1, after these things. Now, verse 3, he starts by saying, after these events, indicating to us that this is a new scene. The curtain has has closed for the uh, previous scene and now opened again. And so he references this passage of time. And hint to the readers that something new is going to unfold. But he removes Esther from the spotlight to bring her back only in the next chapter. But for now, he uses irony to bring the villain to center stage. Haman is now at the center stage with the spotlight in him. And um, he received the promotion that Mordecai should have received. Remember that? How second chapter ended with Mordecai revealing the plan the plot against the king, and immediately when we ended that chapter, we thought, great, this guy's going to be rewarded. He deserves to be rewarded. But that's not what happens. The author purposefully lets us know that a guy by the name of Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of Agag, receives the promotion that should have gone to Mordecai. So our sense of justice is stirred immediately when we're reading this uh, book. In fact, again, I told you this many times before. The Bible is the only book that reads you back while you're reading it. Now our sense of justice is stirred, and we immediately cry out, Why? Why, Lord? Why have you overlooked Mordecai? Because that's our impression, that God is overlooking this man. Shouldn't he have been rewarded for doing the right thing? And that's a fair question. We ask those questions all the time, especially when we are at the receiving end of a perceived injustice. Now... I experienced this several years ago when a friend of mine, a well-intentioned believer, but confused believer, 
told me something similar. So he wanted to comfort me at my son's memorial service, and he said to me, I can't believe that God has done that to you. You help people. I mean, I would have understood if he would have done that to me. I'm the bad guy. You, you, you are, you, the, you, you serve others. Now, I, this wasn't a time for another sermon. I wasn't ready to give him a lecture on divine justice or theodicy. That's the technical term for that. And I didn't know what part of his perspective to correct first. So I just thanked him for being there. And I said, we'll follow up with this. And we did. We had uh, lunch um, some, some days afterwards. And I had the opportunity to present to him the biblical perspective on perceived injustice. And here it is. Here's the biblical perspective on perceived injustice. God permits and allows and many times orchestrates, really, tragedy in the lives of his people. He, he makes it happen, whether through the death of a loved one or hostility from the culture or from other people for reasons we don't know and we may never know. And it's not our place to know because we are limited beings. We live one day at a time. We can't handle having all the information that God has from the divine perspective of the eternal present. So we're not supposed to know a lot of the things, a lot of the answers we, we seek. All we need to do is to learn to trust the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1 verse 3. We just need to trust him that whatever it is that he is doing, he knows what he's doing. I may not like it now. It may hurt, but whatever it is he's doing, I trust that it's good, it's, it's just, it's loving, and he will vindicate his people at the right time, whether on earth or if not on earth, for sure when we get to glory. So we have that certainty from Scripture that he will vindicate his people. We will be rewarded at the proper time, if not on earth, which may never happen, but surely when we get to heaven, we will be vindicated by, because of what Christ has already accomplished. So the author's inclusion here of the ancestry of the antagonist of the story. Remember, the protagonist is Esther, Mordecai closely behind, and we have now the antagonist or the villain, Haman. Now, the fact that the author includes the ancestry of this man heightens the tension of the narrative on purpose because that stimulates our curiosity. That's what the Bible is doing in our hearts. Now, years prior... To the events in Susa here, remember, the, the setting of the whole thing is Susa in the Persian uh, Empire, the Persian kingdom there. Events surrounding the, the palace of the king, which in the first chapter we concluded was named Paradise. Obviously, a, an earthly paradise. Uh, the Bible talks about the paradise of heaven. The prophet Samuel finished the job that King Saul refused to do or failed to do. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 15, verses 32 through 33. Then Samuel said, this is after King Saul refused to kill Agag. Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. First Samuel 15, verses 32 to 33. A very bloody scene here. Now, the prophet went a little overboard in the case of that. We can, we can say this. God ordered the king of the Amalekites dead, but Samuel, out of uh, frustration with, with Saul, 
went a little overboard. He didn't have to chop the guy up in pieces. But that's the reason, again, what happened centuries before now makes sense when we get to the book of Esther because Haman, the Agagite, nursed a grudge against Mordecai's people for that very reason. The text doesn't tell us that. We conclude that by the context, context of the history of Israel. So Haman is nursing this grudge against the Jews, Mordecai's people, because of that. And by the way, Saul was a descendant of Benjamin. He was never supposed to be the kingly line in Israel anyway. The irony here then is that the villain received a promotion that should have gone to another, and he is, and this villain is rising to power, and you think that, that's a dangerous combination. The guy with the grudge as in the second in command, that's a, that's a dangerous combination. Well, let's keep reading here. The second act. We're going to call this the insubordination, verses 2 through 5. Second half of verse 2 through verse 5. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servant who were, servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Now evidently what's happening here is that the people of the king's gate, again, this is a reference of some sort of a court, some sort of a, a group of important people here who gathered at the king's gate to conduct royal business, and Mordecai was a part of that, remember? The people of, of that group looked up to him, and that's why they're, they're, they're inquiring about this. They're saying, what's your rationale here? They wanted to see if he could get away with it, if, because if Mordecai could get away with it, then probably they would too. So Esther's cousin, who had instructed the heroine of the story to not reveal her identity, remember that? Last chapter. Now he reveals his identity. He reveals that he has Jewish blood. This was the time. Perfect time for him to say, this is the reason why I'm not doing this. I have a divine command not to commit idolatry. Now there's nothing wrong with honoring and dignitary. There's nothing wrong with, with showing respect for the office. In fact, we should do that too. Now, we are Americans, right? We love criticizing governments. The government is, is sort of a pastime for us. It's, it's even expected, right? Mocking, criticizing, doing impressions of the president. We laugh and that's all funny, all of that. Now, this is a different culture. Remember, there, there is nothing wrong with showing respect for the office. Even though you may disagree with almost everything they're doing, that's fine. But this is not showing respect for the office here. This is not a request to be demonstrated uh, dignity. No, this is a request to being worshipped. Haman wants to be worshipped because that, that, that was part of their culture there. The king was worshipped. He was second in command. So he said, well, maybe I can get some of that too. I can soak up some of that idolatry. And Mordecai then reveals to the people that he had Jewish blood and therefore a command from God specifically against idolatry. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You remember those. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5. Thou shalt not bow down to graven images or have other gods before me, whether they are made of a graven image or people. No, and that, and that, that's still valid, by the way, uh, in our, in our culture even. We have our idols, don't we? They're not statues of gold. They're not graven images. They're perhaps ideas. The idol of our time now is the self. We idolize self. We, we burn incense to our own accomplishments and dreams. 
But, the, but here, uh, we're all commanded to not have any other gods before God. An idol, therefore, is anyone or anything that occupies God's place in your heart. And Haman is demanding that he, uh, that he do that. And that demand is manifested in this edict from the king. By the way, it's from the king. The king says everybody should bow down and pay homage to Haman. And Mordecai said in, in, in very Hebrew fashion with the accent, no way, Jose. <laughs> now, he also may have wanted to avoid the same type of divine rebuke that Saul received generations earlier. He was certainly familiar with that story. And by refusing to bow down to a descendant of Agag, Esther's adopted father therefore violated a command from Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. Remember that? He therefore committed civil disobedience. In this case, obviously justified before God, but this was civil disobedience. Remember, Vashti had been deposed for the same crime. So there's a, a real danger here for Mordecai. But let's look at the third act. I'm going to call the third act here the influence, verse 6. The influence. But he, meaning Haman, disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, Haman is a bad dude. He's a guy with an inflated ego. He has pride, as we will see as we continue to read the story here, and his pride gets the best of him. But he's a bad guy. Now, instead of simply going to the king and saying, hey, this guy is violating your command here, he thought a better plan in his mind, a more uh, diabolical plan that would not only eliminate Mordecai, but every trace of God's people, every trace of the Jews. So he devised a strategy that in his mind would avenge the execution of his forefather, Agag, many times over. You see? He's thinking, this is literally overkill. He's thinking, okay, I'm going to avenge my family here, my family history. This is an old family feud. And he's thinking, I'm in a position to do this, to order the elimination of, this is the first Holocaust in history here. Planned Holocaust. Didn't happen, as we will see at the end. I, I hate to tell you the, the, the end of the story, but we know it. Even if you, didn't, if you never read the book of Esther, we know it didn't happen because Jesus was a Jew from uh, fleshly descent. Uh, Mary was also a descendant, by the way, from, from the line of Judah as well. But what we have here is overkill. Now, the similarities with our tendencies here are evident at this point. Because of our sinful nation, and if, if you have to agree with me if you're honest here, because of our sinful nation, we always tip the scale of justice unfairly in our favor. Have you ever noticed that? When we receive the short end of the stick in our perception, or when we are in the receiving end of the offense, we hardly ever pursue eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We don't want that. We, we, we love that principle, and we are um, hypocritically in favor of that principle when somebody else is at the end of, of the offense. But we are, when we are victims of a real or a perceived offense. In the case of Haman here, this was a perceived offense because God ordained the execution of his forefather as an act of divine justice, divine wrath. But when we are victims of real or perceived offense, if we're honest, we must admit 
that deep inside we want the overkill. We want two eyes for an eye. We want two teeth for a tooth. We, want, we don't want to tie the game. We want to one-up our offender. We want to end up at the top. And that's what Haman is doing here. That's what he attempted. He wanted, in this case particular, one-up God. Because God was the one who ordained the killing of his forefather. He might have thought something like this. Oh, yeah, God? You order the execution of my people? I will kill your people. How about that? I'm in a position to kill your people and therefore annul all of the promises you made to your people. I can one-up God. That, that, that's the amount of arrogance that this guy has in his head. Now, I want you to consider, church, the foolishness of contending against God. This is what this man's doing here. Now, the author doesn't tell us that he doesn't have to. That's the beauty of narrative in the Bible. It's up to us to figure that out. And by divine inspiration and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we do figure that out and we apply that in our lives. And in his mind, Haman is, is committing this foolish act of contending with God. Now, anybody who even attempts such a suicide mission is already defeated before the fight even begins. You against God will never be a fair fight. Never. And yet people try it all the time. This is what Haman is getting himself into. This is a self-defeating position, which proves to the entire world that messing with God's people is a terrible idea. Trying to get at God by messing with God's people is a self-defeating suicide mission. Now, people may prosper for a little bit in history, but then their, their downfall is evident. In church, that is the reason I don't lose sleep over possibly being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus. And you shouldn't lose sleep over it anyway. Again, we live in a part of the world that, where that is unthinkable. That doesn't happen. We were founded in the principles of liberty, right? As a nation, we were born on the principles of freedom of religion, but when that comes under attack, even if that reverses completely, I, I, I have no fear. Because sure, I may lose my life, but I'll be in glory. And God's people will always be vindicated at the right time. God's plans are going to be fulfilled. And listen, didn't Jesus promise he would build his church? So what? I have no fear. By the way, when I realized that it was Jesus' job to build his church, that was, it was so liberating for me as a pastor to conclude that it's not my job to build a church. Christ promised to do it. And no one will ever be able to frustrate his promises. As we see here in the person of Haman, no one is ever able to undo God's promises. God's promises will never be undone by human activity. No matter the decisions that people make, no matter, they can legislate all they want. God's plans will always remain. Now, if anyone wants to attack, badmouth, abuse, and antagonize people whom Christ purchased with his own blood, children of God, good luck. Because you're messing with the king of the universe, the king of kings. When, when people try to do that, they are challenging the Lord himself. Why? Because remember, Christ is in us. Whatever people do to you, they're doing it to Christ. When people are kind to you, they're showing kindness to Jesus Christ who lives in you. 
When people are mean to you or rude to you or they abuse, attack, badmouth you, drag your name through the mud, they're doing it to Christ. That is so serious. That is another reason here. Let me make a parenthetical comment. That is another reason, church, we should take gossiping very seriously. The sin of gossiping. You do not talk about another believer in Christ in bad terms. Go to him or her. Don't badmouth him or her because you're doing it to Christ. How foolish is that? Now, challenging God to a fight by saying, I'm going to persecute your people here. You might as well poke a lion with a twig. That is safer. Now, Satan, no doubt, is involved here. Again, God's name is not mentioned in the book, but neither is Satan named in the book. He doesn't have to. We know the drama of redemption. It started in the Garden of Eden. And again, the picture is never of two equally powerful deities competing for power. That is not the accurate picture here. God is the all-powerful God. Satan is a created being. He's more powerful than us, obviously. He is not mentioned in the book here, but the author doesn't have to. Let me ask you something. Is it far-fetched to think that the devil would try everything in his power to prevent the Jewish Messiah from being born? Is it too far-fetched to think that? Especially in light of what happened in Genesis 3.15 when God told the serpent, a descendant of the woman will crush you on the head. Referring to the Messiah. We'll pick up here next week. And as always, if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.